Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre, and today I'll be speaking with Simon Granroth. Simon is a social psychologist and science communicator, and the author of the article The Psychology of Political Division, Populism and Enmity, and How to Counter It in Four Steps. You can find this article in the publication Beyond Flat Earth, Conspiracy Theories versus European Liberals, from the European Liberal Forum and Project Porchka. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of July. I'm here with Simon Gronroth. Simon, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. And you have a very important paper about the psychological of political division, populism, and enmity, how to counter it. We're going to talk about all of that in a second, but first, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm a social psychologist and science communicator based in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, I'm a Swedish-speaking Finn, which means I have two uh, languages that I speak fluently, Swedish and Finnish. I've studied social psychology and law at the university here in Helsinki and um, did some work researching at the Faculty of Social Sciences. And then later I wrote my master's thesis at the, uh, in, a, in collaboration with the National Defense University. And my thesis was actually the first study to explore how the moral foundations theory works in a military sample. Uh, which was very interesting research and the moral foundation theory all in all aims to explain how it comes that liberals and conservatives or people all in all um, how our values work and how our moralizing process works uh, and in a way it explains the the differences uh, in why and how we come to think so differently at the same kind of societal questions and moral questions as well Uh, and right now I've been working as a social, uh, sorry, a science communicator at a research center here in, in Finland, where we do uh, genetic research and societal research and some psychology as well. And I, I'm very happy to do that. It, I, I love the work I do. And uh, lately we had um, municipal elections in, in Finland as well. And, and um, it was the second time that I was uh, a candidate. I, I drive... Uh, I do. Um, I'm part of the Swedish People's Party in in Finland. We are actually the maybe the de facto liberal party of of Finland. It's a small party, but we punch way above uh, way above our weight. And I feel that there's room for more of that kind of rational, uh, science-based, liberal democratic discourse, where we don't seek to polarize, but rather pragmatize and find common ground in questions about values and morals and where we want to be as a society. Yeah, that would be me as a nutshell. And so how, how did it went? Did you win? We actually increased our, our support in Helsinki by some 2,500 votes. It was the best election result for the, our party in Helsinki since 1996. So it went well. And I actually... Um, I did a personal best uh, in, in personal votes. For me, I was the best of the worst candidates, so to speak. So <laughs> I was 19 votes short of a deputy councillor seat in Helsinki. So it's pretty good for a young guy like me. 
Yeah, well, now it's all the way up to be Prime Minister of Finland, I'm quite sure. <laughs> yeah, that's the next step. As I said, you have this article on Beyond Flat Earth, Conspiracy Theories versus European Liberals, from our friends in Project Polska, and particularly the editor Milos Odum. And you do bring some very thought-provocative topics to the conversation. And you may get a little technical here for our listeners, so fair warning. But I think this is the best way for us to go into more detail of some arguments you make. So let me ask you my first question, which is you get into behavioral studies that lead us to explanations in a particular phenomenon that you call fundamental attribution error. Tell us why is this important? First off, it's an excellent question. But first off, I want to make clear that Uh, when we use science and behavioral science and psychology to explain societal phenomena like this, we should always keep in mind that the explanation is multifactorial. So there is no one thing that we can pinpoint down that uh, is the main route for some phenomena of happening. But this might be part of the explanation that we're looking for. All right. So the um, fundamental attribution error or attribution all in all is the process where we attribute or explain behavior in a manner. So this person did that because of this, that's attribution, or these people are bad people, or those people are good people. That's, we give them attributes. And uh, uh, the fundamental attribution error is the human tendency to misattribute. Uh, we attribute, uh, but not realistically. So. And this, there's a division in, in this phenomena where we tend to give the in-group, the group that I identify with, more positive attributes for what we do. Uh, and usually it goes like this. If I succeed in something or somebody from my in-group succeeds in something, uh, I will attribute them with some inner attribute. Like this person, my friend, succeeded in getting a job because he's so good at what he does or he's a good person. But then again, if he uh, failed at it, I will attribute it to some outer thing like he didn't get it because he speaks the wrong language and they are racist or uh, he didn't get it because he was unlucky or something like this, uh, some other circumstance. But when it comes to the out group, it works the other way around. So if somebody from the out group that I can't identify with succeeds and I don't really like it, Uh, I usually attribute it to something like he was just lucky. He's not so good at it, really. Uh, or when they fail at something or do something horrible, uh, the attribution goes like he's a bad person. So that's the way it is. And uh, this fuels division into in-groups and out-groups quite arbitrarily because the, um, the attribution process usually goes wrong. It's not realistic. It's not true. The truth usually lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, I might have failed because I'm a bad person, but I also might have failed because I was unlucky or something like that. Or I might be very professional at what I do, but there were other better candidates for this position or something like this. When we look at this phenomena at a grander scale, societal scale, the fundamental attribution error leads us into seeing other groups, outgroups in a more negative light and our own in-group in a more positive light. And this fuels division. So I think identifying in our own thinking when we might be misattributing 
or failing in our own thinking process is crucial to mitigate unnecessary division. And this is often seen when talking about governments and, and policies, which is exactly what you're saying. Well, they're benefiting that mm. group in particular. All the policies are made for that group to be mm. successful. No, it isn't. <laughs> that, is just, that is just your attribution that it's flawed. Then this leads us to more of a tribalistic nature, doesn't fit with the liberal perspective of living in a multicultural, you know, multi-ethnic and progressive society. So you do uh, bring some solutions to the table, getting to getting to those uh, now. So thou, how can we develop mechanisms to fight this uh, attribution default that we have? Yes, so, so I think there are a few main problems that liberal democracy faces. And one is that our democratic platforms and forums are not very well suited to uh, bring nuance to the table and uh, facilitate discussion over arguments and debate and even marketing. Since nowadays when uh, politics are largely on social media and uh, our classical democratic platforms are uh, not that well suited for, for nuanced discussion, the political discourse has become more and more marketing. You're selling a concept rather than uh, trying to find solutions. So uh, I really think that we need to review and rethink how we go about this process, how we keep um, democracy available and accessible for, for all. And, and also, I think uh, one of the large problems that we face is that uh, for liberal democracy to work in any society, we need a functioning uh, safety net system for social and healthcare and economy as well. And we need an accessible uh, educational system so that everybody can have the same opportunities to participate. And also liberal democracy is all about informed arguments mm -hmm. and informed discussion. And if you're not, if education is not attainable on a large scale for everyone, then of course this is doomed to fail. And that's why it's so important that liberal democracy also provides these mechanisms for for the people. And, and then, of course, for liberal democracy to work, we need, uh, for, and for a multicultural and multi-ethnic cosmopolitan progressive society, uh, we need to share our basic core values. Since uh, the world word culture is sometimes a bit problematic for a social psychologist like myself, since culture might refer to music or food or uh, language or traditions, um, how you how we greet each other and such. But culture is also our traditions and our values, and we need to at least share our core values, how we think and go about. Uh, building a society, uh, how we think about human rights, for example. And uh, there we really need to screw, uh, be able to discuss and criticize and scrutinize traditions and culture as well. Uh, since uh, some cultures don't share uh, our views on liberalism or practice circumcision or uh, think that women shouldn't be uh, able to participate in society on a grander scale or uh, things like this. And, and uh, we face some of these attitudes in our own societies as well in the West. And and we need to keep the discussion open and uh, civilized 
and really go about it in a pragmatic way. So uh, to summarize, uh, the core values need to be streamlined. We need to share our core values. Second, for liberal democracy to work, we need to have an accessible and uh, an accessible society where uh, education all the way from kindergarten to higher education is really accessible for everybody uh, because we need to facilitate informed arguments uh, and uh, a cosmopolitan worldview. Uh, and if we fail at this, uh, it all falls in the hands of populist arguments and uh, populist agendas. Third, our economic structure needs to be built in such a way that um, we don't that everybody is available or able to participate in society and in the work market as well. And nobody is left out, really. No, no one certain group feels that it can't uh, participate and build a future for themselves here. So we have a very good roadmap here. You talk about culture and, for example, there's this larger conversation about European culture and how European culture go all the way from food to movies to literature. So how do you react when people and going into the tribalistic nature mm -hmm. when people say, OK, we are an open society, we are a cosmopolitan society, we'll take people from other cultures, but they'll have to adapt to our culture. What, what's your what's your position on that? Culture can be defined in many different ways and and the lighter forms of culture music and art and food and uh, Language and such those are Like the best parts of culture that mix and match and have always done so uh, human society has been multicultural in one way or another uh, for the last 7,000 years or so uh, except for some evolutionary bottlenecks where some one population have become isolated for a longer time. Uh, but we've really been multicultural and within Europe, there is no one European culture. We share some common attributes, but the Northern culture and the Southern culture or Central Europeans and Eastern Europeans all have different nuances in their cultures. But we share many of our common core values. And that's the thing that I think is important when we talk about multiculturalism. The way you dress or the way you like to prepare your food or hug your family members is arbitrary. Uh, those are traditions and uh, nuances in culture that are very welcome in any society. They bring flavor and color and uh, value to any society. Um, but when our core values aren't shared, um, that's when we're heading into conflict. We need to share our views on human rights, for example. Uh, we need to share um, our regard for democracy and uh, uh, liberalism and such for this to work. And these are two separate discussions, and I think they are often, with, uh, without any good reason, mixed together when we talk about integration, for example. And I think we could have a much more nuanced and uh, progressive and constructive discussion if we were to uh, define the concepts before we discuss them in politics, for example. That's a great point, because sometimes people get lost in the, in the details of how people look or how people act, and then we do not talk about the core values. So I totally agree with you on that one. 
you gave us, like I said, some of the solutions to fight our tribalistic nature. But still with that, Simon, and with the need for education, for economic opportunity, for growth, for culture, there's still an increasing number of people that are more and more comfortable with the idea of living in an authoritarian state. Just not too long ago in my home country, there's this poll that said that there's a growing number of people that look back when we were a dictatorship and start thinking, well, maybe that's a solution. And of course, this is highly troubling for all mm -hmm. of us. So tell us why, why are we seeing this wave of you know, conformity to have strong men be uh, rulers and, and not you know, worry too much about democracy and about core values? When humans feel threatened for any reason, we tend to look for simple solution for complex problems. And populism and authoritarianism provide those solutions very effectively. They uh, claim to provide safety and security. And uh, so we really have to address the feelings of uh, insecurity that people apparently feel. Uh, and this might stem from economic insecurity, uh, physical insecurity. Uh, they might regard health or opportunities in life for, for your children. And these are all very um, rightful and uh, um, very much real feelings that people may have. Uh, so regardless or not, whether these feelings stem from something that's really going on in society or It's just an emotion that you happen to feel because of something in your personal life. Liberal Democrats need to address these emotions to be able to fight populism effectively and um, to bring nuance to the table. And we need to call out uh, when facts are portrayed in a false light or when, uh, when simple uh, solutions are incorrect. Um, and we need to be able to also provide for these feelings in an effective manner. And, and this is a, t a tendency that we can see all the way from ancient Rome, where, uh, where society was threatened. We uh, looked up to a dictator uh, to set everything right. And that's, that's exactly the tendency that's been going on uh, for <laughs> all of human civilization. And, uh, and it doesn't tend to end so well, as we know. Uh, so authoritarianism and populism provide simple solutions to complex questions and people tend to look for these simple solutions when they feel threatened. So we need to really approach these uh, feelings of insecurity effectively and provide solutions for them as liberals as well uh, in a liberal uh, just way rather than in a populist authoritarian way. I'm talking with the right person here because this this is a fantastic uh, discussion and such a fascinating point because as we some as we see some of the populists gaining um, ground and, and presenting themselves as solutions, how do you how do we and how do you you can help us uh, figure out that out? How do we determine what are the true variables of this contempt? So. And I'm sure you and our listeners know this very well. Donald Trump, it was mentioned that he was trying to appease some economic insecurities. 
he was not doing that and it wasn't the way that he won he won because of racial and and illiberal tendencies that some of in the united states have and that can go all the way to portugal to austria to france to sweden you know to our our friends in the eastern part of the, of europe so how can we de detect you know the, the the variables that are really moving people to more and more tolerate this kind of uh, illiberal solution I think it can be partly partially explained by identity and identity politics. So uh, the national state, for example, is a mm -hmm. human construct. Um, people have been moving all around, lived in tribes for years. And then came the, the national state construct. For example, there is no Finnish people. We've always mixed with the Russians, with the Swedes, with the Estonians, with the Sami people. And uh, with the oncoming of the national state, we constructed a, uh, a national identity for us. And this identity is appealing because it appeals to our uh, tribalistic nature, a group to identify with. And the feeling of belonging in a group and the feeling of community is very much a natural core need for all humans. And with regards to the in-group, out-group dilemma that we discussed earlier, um, these authoritarian leaders like Donald Trump, for example, uh, claimed to address the economic issues, meanwhile scapegoating the out-group. And um, that's something that the authoritarian leaders have always done. Uh, it's an easy way to get popular because uh, it's easy to blame it on anyone uh, outcast group in society. They are the problem to all our economic insecurity or uh, physical insecurity or whatnot. And uh, uh, and what we need to do is bring nuance to the table and say, hey, it's not this simple. There are many more factors in play here and we can't explain this complex problem by just blaming this one group. It's not that easy. It's not true. And uh, the search for truth is something that we need to, to strive for. So I think, um, but we also need to address uh, the very real feelings of insecurity that authoritarians and populists play on to thrive and offer real solutions to socioeconomic problems, for example, that our economy in the last 20 years or so hasn't been that good at uh, solving, really. I mean, I was born in the 90s and we had a uh, what they called a once in a lifetime economic depression. And uh, that economic depression has now happened three times in my lifetime. <laughs> so so we really need to to uh, rework our uh, economic framework as well, I think, because that's one of the main things that people feel insecure about. They feel insecure and threatened uh, by their future prospects in life. That's a great point. And as you mentioned, education, education, not only the formal one, the traditional one, but also conversation among people and the work of the media. So a lot, a lot that we can do. Still yes, on that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, that's very much true. Uh, education and also familiarity with uh, other other uh, people since um, it's much harder to divide people into in-groups and out-groups if you are familiar and feel be uh, feel a belongingness with other groups as well. 
if you've seen the world, maybe speak a couple of languages and are familiar with other cultures because they don't seem so strange and other at that point anymore. And familiarity is one of the main things that uh, bring people together and help us to identify and uh, empathize with uh, peoples from uh, other cultures, for example. As you were just saying about, you know, familiarity, and one thing that we can see, particularly here in the European Union, is that uh, more and more young people, and you're presented yourself as a millennial, more and more people are traveling, are intermingling, are getting to know our Europeans. So are you, do you have hope? Are you positive in a way that you think that apart from, all, you know, all these move, movements that we've been seeing lately, of populists in Europe and it looks like it's stagnated a little bit but let's you know let's not give up the fight that easy but are you optimistic in a way that you think that next 10-15 years we'll see even more of this uh, defending car values of what is to be Europeans living in liberal democracies I stay cautiously positive for the case of the European Union <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, I, so. I think there's, um, of course, there's a generational shift going on and uh, values in society tend to change really when a generational shift comes. And now the millennials are entering the work market for real uh, and the, the big generations of the 90s are soon going out. And that's what I think when we'll see... Uh, <laughs> uh, Soon going out, it's a great expression. <laughs> uh, but, but I think that's the point when we'll see um, a change in, in attitudes. And I hope these attitudes will be less polarized, uh, more welcoming, more liberal, uh, more humane. Uh, since liberals have, uh, sorry, millennials have uh, uh, statistically a, a, a very different worldview. Not all, but some of us. Uh, always when talking statistics, we have to have to think about this. But but then again, I think it's a socio-economic issue as well. Uh, myself as a middle-class Swedish-speaking Finn in, in Helsinki, I've been able to travel some, learn languages, get familiar with peoples from different cultures to study. But everybody don't have these opportunities and and i think that's that's a problem as well since the the division into uh liberals and authoritarian populist tendencies in almost all european countries are also socio-economic divisions uh, they follow the same lines uh, into those who feel that they have opportunity and those those who don't uh, so we need to I, I think addressing the issue of of opportunities is really one of the core problems here. Uh, we had so much more to discuss. Um, you go into the publication Moral Foundation Theory and how can that translate to policy and to make our lives better. But I'll, I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to come back again also because there's a couple of points that you brought up that I would love to go into more detail. But for now... Tell people how can they follow your work. Yes, so I'm active on most social media platforms, all the way from Instagram to Facebook to LinkedIn, and of course on ResearchGate. Uh, and you'll find me by uh, googling Simon Granroth. Uh, I know it's hard to spell out in English, but uh, Simon Granroth. 
in in English. <laughs> well, I'm going to put all the links on the podcast show notes, and you need to follow Simon's work because you are one of the people in the field doing the the best work possible to try to make sense not only of the problems but to find the best solutions. So I've been talking with Simon Gronroth. The article is The Psychology of Political Division, Populism's Anonymity, How to Counter It, and the Four Steps for Tyranny that we haven't talked about and we need to. So I'm definitely going to have you back on the podcast. But for now, Simon, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me, Ricardo. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of July. On the 8th of July, starting at 2 p.m., we have a Zoom webinar on the agenda. Deepfakes, are we ready for the upcoming storm? How could deepfakes be a threat to democracy and what can be done? What impact will the use of AI chatbots face swapping technology and machine learning have on our privacy should social media platforms implement deep fake content removal policies these are very important questions in a very crucial time because technology is really really intruding in democratic processes to know more about this event you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast, it's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily...